Coral just gave you the gospel. Did you see that? She had a story. She tied it to the message of today. I don't even need to do anything up here. We can just continue with the service in all seriousness. But I guess, I guess I'll continue for a couple of minutes. I have some stuff prepared. My name's Charlie. If I don't know you, I'm a, a Missio community leader in Tempe. Uh, Keaton and I are my wife, and we're in a season of discerning and figuring out what our MC will be about and where we're being called to serve. But we're figuring it out. And uh, I have the privilege of teaching today. As Americans, uh, if you are an American in the room, we have a obsession with uh, the individual. Like the person, uh, we're looking for when we see success, we're looking for who can we celebrate as an individual that represents that success. Uh, to use a sports analogy, like the quarterback of the team, like he gets all the praise, he gets paid the most for the team. But what about the offensive linemen, the people in front of him that are protecting him? Like, they don't really get any recognition. It's just the quarterback, right? We celebrate him. He gets the new car when they win the Super Bowl, not the 350-pound offensive lineman. Taylor Swift, okay. Uh, any Taylor Swift fans in the room? Great. Uh, don't worry. It's all not going to be about Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey. Uh, but, like, Taylor Swift, like, she gets, like, the accolades. She wins the awards. But, like, what about the, the truck drivers that take the stage from place to place on the tour? Or the people that are playing the music in the background that you don't even know their names. They've been doing it for years. You just focus on the one at the expense of the other. Or what about, like, a CEO of a business? Uh, they represent, like, the success. Maybe a business really grew and it was profound growth and no one can explain it. But what about all the people that made that success possible? We're about to enter into Advent in a couple of weeks. And if you don't, want, know, don't know what Advent is, it's a season uh, of the church, season of the church calendar. And the easiest way to explain it would be it's a season of watching and waiting for Jesus. And how we do that is we uh, long for his return, and we also lament the ways the world is broken. And rightfully so, Advent centers on one person, Jesus. He's the hero of the story. He's the person we should put our attention to. But in my experience, and my journey with Jesus, often we miss some of the other key characters as we lead up to Advent that actually play a supporting, beautiful role. One of those is John the Baptizer. You might know him as John the Baptist. He was not a Baptist. He was more of a non-denominational kind of guy. Uh, he lived in the desert, all right? He did not go to a Baptist church. John the Baptizer is his name. And so we're going to look on his life today. And the two words that I want to bring before you is I hope that the life of John the Baptist will help you both resonate with his experience and then hopefully produce resilience. You'd resonate with his experience and you would produce in you and me resilience. So we're going to look at the life of John the Baptist. We're going to do that primarily through the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'm going to turn there in a second, but if you want, you can find the Gospel of Luke right now in your Bible. But we're going to look at the story of John's life through the Gospel of Luke. John's life started in a miraculous way, which is interesting because in the story of the Bible, this is a common pattern. There was a woman who desperately wanted children who, could, who was barren, who had struggled with infertility, and prayed and prayed and prayed for God to open her womb. That was John's mother, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Zechariah, John's dad, they were hoping for a child and amazingly, an angel appears to Elizabeth, John's mom, and says, hey, you're going to have a child, which will be, become John. And God does this amazing work. Uh, a couple scenes later in John's life, uh, 
Mary travels, as she heard about being, giving birth to Jesus soon enough as well in a miraculous way, she travels to meet Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, the moment she hears, the mom hears, and, and with John in her womb, hears the greeting of Mary, it says John leaped in the womb. Do you want to know the first witness of the gospel? It was right there. And this is a side note, but it's an area of mine that I have an invested interest in. But as you think about that picture of witness, it should expand our understanding of witness. Uh, disability scholars around the world would look at that little story. This unborn child who could not say any words was the first witness of the gospel. And as we think about the body of Christ, the witness is far more expansive than we can imagine. And we need all, whether they have ability to speak or not, or a whole range of abilities to participate in this work because that's what Jesus does in his kingdom. All right, that's a side note. Let's continue with the story. So John hears the, the proclamation or the, uh, the greeting. He leaps. Uh, later, he's born. When he's born, his parents sense, obviously from the angel and from others, that he had a significant role to play in God's story. He goes and do really, I think, probably rigorous training. At some point, he ends up in the desert. Uh, some people maybe believe he was part of the group called the Essenes who lived in the desert and had a way of seeing and longing for the kingdom that was removed from uh, the culture at large in some ways. And then about 30 years later, John enters into his public ministry, and he's doing this thing called baptizing. Now, what he was doing is he was preparing people by baptizing them in the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River should be like a hyperlink for you if you know the story of the Bible. Jordan River was the place where the Israelites had crossed uh, into the Promised Land from the great uh, uh, slavery they experienced from Pharaoh in Egypt. And so what John's trying to say and do as he baptizes people in the Jordan is he's saying, I'm going to bring about, or not me, but I'm going to be part of a new exodus that is happening. A new story of God bringing his people out of slavery. And this picture of the Jordan and me putting people into the water and out is a sign of what's to come. One day, John sees Jesus walking towards him. And now I'm going to cheat for a second. I'm going to go over to the Gospel of John. But in the Gospel of John, it says that John declared to the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like the fruit and the faithfulness of all of his ministry leads to this one central moment. Jesus comes to him, and then the twist of the story, Jesus asks to be baptized by John. John gets to baptize Jesus. As John, Jesus comes out of the water, heaven opens. It says in the Gospel of Mark, it tore open. Heaven literally tore open and filled the earth. And he hears these words, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Like, if you talk about the pinnacle of a life experience, of fruitfulness and faithfulness, it is that picture right there. You got to baptize the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world. And then Jesus is sent off into the wilderness and then to do his public ministry. Now, this is where we pick up. Luke chapter 3. If you turn there. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Think of the context of all that John has experienced. The beauty that he got to experience of the kingdom of God literally breaking in. The thing he had been preparing for. And then verse 19, Luke chapter 3, verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod because of his marriage with Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to this, this to them all. He locked John up in prison. 
John's in prison, chained in a dungeon somewhere because he's speaking truth to power. Story continues. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, the, uh, he says, uh, good news, the kingdom of God is here. It's going to bring freedom to the prisoners. It's going to bring liberation to those who are oppressed. Like this kingdom is a kingdom of justice and reconciliation. And it's here and I'm the embodiment of it. But John remains in prison. This whole time he's in prison. At some point probably he gets a little anxious like, hey, have I missed something? I got to witness Jesus be baptized. I have heard stories of what Jesus is doing, but I'm stuck in a dungeon in a dark place. Like, what is Jesus up to? So what does he do? He takes some of his disciples, John does, and he sends them to Jesus. And he says, go ask Jesus a simple question. Are you the one we should be waiting for? Or should I expect somebody else? I don't know how he said it or what he meant exactly, but I would assume it's like, with disorientation. Are you the one? Or should we expect somebody else? Because look at my circumstances. If you want to turn over, look, uh, turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. It says this, John's disciples told him about all these things, told John that's in prison. They're visiting him there. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord and, and to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to, to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy have been cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Sometime after Jesus says these words, John remains in prison. And if you know the story, here's how it ends. Herod was upset that John was speaking truth of his brokenness and sin. Herod's wife was very upset because it was directed towards her. And at a dinner party that, in many ways, we missed the significance of, of how disgusting and ugly it was. The wife of Herod asked for John's head on a platter. An executioner goes down to the prison, wherever it was, in the dungeon, grabs John, beheads John, and brings John's head to Herod. End of story. That's it. That's how the story ends for John. Interestingly, when Jesus says these words to John back to his disciples, he leaves off the part that the prisoners will be released, which he just said a couple chapters earlier, which I think is really interesting. John was supposed to be, or he was, the second Elijah. I don't know how you, if you know the story of how Elijah ended. Elijah ended with a chariot of, to heaven, chariot of fire raised to heaven, and here John ends in the most brutal of ways. Jesus was able to, hear, to heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead, his close friend. What about his cousin, John? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to some people around you. And a simple question, what are you feeling right now? 
as you just heard the story of John, what are you feeling? Not what are you thinking, what are you feeling as you heard this story of John play out? Turn to some people and then I'll invite us back together. Ready, set, go. And if, if you need a feelings wheel, we have a wonderful pillow here. Some of us, like myself, have a hard time identifying what I feel. I'm being really serious. If you need to hold this, be helpful. All right, I'd love to hear from a couple of you. I'll bring the mic to you. I'd love to hear, what are you, what are you feeling as you hear the story of John play out? I feel disgusted. Disgusted, yeah. It's good use of that wheel, too, as well. I feel like I let um, lost my appetite after I eat. Yeah, it's a brutal story. Uh, Kevin's story last week, we're, we're together, these two stories are, this is not a great environment for eating. Yeah, what else? I also use the emotion wheel, and uh, I arrived at uh, insecure. 
because I was like, here's, you know, John, who is a very, very faithful, actual blood relative of Jesus. And look how it ended up for him. So what does that mean for me? What does it mean for my family? Jesus describes John as the greatest human born of a woman. Yeah. I go one step further. I, I felt insignificant, similarly, but then also like a little relieved. Like maybe if I'm not baptizing Jesus, I don't have to die like that. Like, so there's an element of feeling insignificant, but also like maybe it's okay that I'm not that integrated. <laughs> I don't know if this is like directly a feeling, but I expect more from Jesus. Like I would expect a different ending. The story's always been one that's been really meaningful to me. Um, and I, maybe I'm weird, but I feel really encouraged by it. Like, I feel really encouraged that John, who was the one that, like, publicly declared, like, behold the Lamb of God, and then he's in prison, and things did not go the way he wanted. And he's like, are you the one we're waiting for, or should we be looking for someone else? Like, like blessed are those that don't stumble over, like, the expectation not being met, right? And I feel encouraged by that because Jesus is so kind and gentle in his response of like, look what I'm doing. Like, there's still stuff going on, and it's it's not just about you, but it's it's encouraging in a way that, um, like, don't miss me just because of what's happening in your life. And I feel like that's been a message that has been encouraging to me, like, multiple times when I'm like, hey, I'm doing this good thing for you, and this is going bad, or this is all falling apart and this is hard. And it's encouraging to me to be like, okay, like don't stumble over and miss Jesus because of things not turning out the way that I think the kingdom should like play out. Um, in a way, I guess you can say that you are feeling sadness and empathy towards this situation because in a way it's you're feeling sadness because of what how the outcome was yeah. but you're also feeling empathy because he still preached the gospel in the way that he felt necessary even though if he knew what the outcome could have been these are such good insights My guess, at least my flinch, is that what John experienced, or maybe what you're experiencing as you hear the story, as you kind of work through the emotions of it, is a, is a word dissonance. Dissonance. Dissonance is this, if you don't familiar with the word. It's a growing awareness of a gap between your belief and your circumstances. There's a gap between what you believe to be true and then your circumstances or outcomes. It could sound like this. This is what dissonance can sound like. I believe God can heal, yet I find myself facing a really scary diagnosis. I believe God is peace, and yet I find myself in paralyzing anxiety or mental illness. I believe God is a God of justice, yet I find myself in the midst of a broken and unjust system. 
I believe God welcomes all to belong, but for some reason, I cannot shake the feeling of being lonely and isolated. I believe God has sent me to serve and love a particular group of people, yet all I have experienced is disappointment and failure. I believe God is a liberator, and yet I find myself crippled by a corrosive pattern of sin in my life. There's a gap. Dissonance is a growing awareness of a gap between what you believe to be true and your circumstances. I think that's what the story of John is asking us to step into, that gap. The question is, how do we do that? How do we live in that tension? What do we do as we grow in our awareness of that there is a gap? Because right here is a critical moment when you experience dissonance as a follower of Jesus. It's a critical moment. Dissonance can deform you. It can lead you to despair. It can, to use a a modern word, it can cause deconstruction and then a desertion of Jesus. Like, this isn't actually true. Right? But dissonance, this experience of the gap, can also be a threshold for transformation. Uh, A word that is used sometimes is it's a liminal space, which just means a threshold, a space where there's great struggle and pain and reflection that can either destroy us or form and transform us. And I think the invitation of the story and of the gospel accounts is in the midst of that gap, as you wrestle with what you believe to be true in your current experiences, what does it look like to trust and follow Jesus? So I want to give you two things, just two simple things, explicitly from John's life and then implicitly, I think, from what John shows us as we look towards Advent and as we long and wait for Jesus. The first thing explicitly we notice from John's life as he works through this dissonance of his belief and circumstances is that we need to rely on the eyes of others. We need to rely on on the eyes of others. Notice in the story, John is having this interaction with his disciples, and they're telling him about what Jesus is doing, but his circumstances do not match what they are saying. There's, there's difference, right? That's why he even poses the question. Uh, this last week uh, on Netflix, a show dropped, which I'm not a big Netflix show person, but every once in a while, one grabs my attention. And it's based off a book called All the Light We Cannot See. It won a Pulitzer Prize several years ago by Anthony Doerr. And often, like the book and the movie, doesn't always do a great job of describing what's happening, but you still have to watch to then complain about why the show doesn't match the book. So just, it just came out, and Keaton and I have watched the last couple of episodes. But uh, the reason I share the story, one, it's a phenomenal book, like... Like, uh, if you're familiar with Christopher Nolan, the filmmaker, it's like that kind of storytelling, but in a book. Like, the sentences, and it's like, it's brilliant. But the story centers on a father and his daughter. Here's a picture of them from the, uh, the show. But his daughter is blind, and the father is a museum keeper. He keeps the most valuable things of a museum. And the story breaks out in the midst of World War II uh, and Germany invading the entire world. And interestingly, the setting of the story, I won't give away all the the wrinkles to it, the setting of the story is of this this little blind girl uh, with a miniature model that the father had made of the city. So in the place that they lived, the father would take the daughter around 
and he would show her, uh, or he would d- demonstrate to her uh, different sounds or, sm- uh, or smells or things that she could touch to identify where in the city she was. And then he built this miniature model for her. And uh, even as the preview for the show, you watch her fingers running over the model of this city that they live in that she's never seen. Here the father has created this miniature model for his daughter to experience what the city's like and to know what it's like, although she's never seen it. I think there's a picture here for us. There's a picture for us as we know a good father who, although we might not be able to see, he's casted a path for us. He's, he's made a model in a sense for us to experience and to sense and understand, for us to walk in, even when maybe physically we can't see what he's up to. This is where faith comes in and hope and love. But then something else happens uh, when we lose our sight, when we can't see, like John couldn't see what Jesus was doing. Something else happens. I I think what happens is the rest of our senses, the rest of our ways of knowing God actually get elevated, and we get to experience God in fresh ways. I want to show you a painting here. This hangs over our our kitchen uh, table. It's from the 1800s by a guy named John Everett Millay, and it's titled The Blind Girl. These are two sisters uh, the older sister there sitting is, says on around, her, um, on around her neck, it says, pity the blind. And then that's her younger sister. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, turn to the same groups that you were just in. Like, what do you notice from the painting? As you think about this picture, that this, the older sister there cannot see. What do you notice happening? What do you think the, the artist was trying to communicate with this picture? And how might it connect with what we're learning today? Turn the people around you. Ready, set, go. Just, just shout out if, if uh, something grabbed your attention. What did you notice from what the artist is trying to do with this picture? What is the artist trying to tell us? The five senses. Yes, the senses are. This is this is the the heart of the painting. Yes, absolutely. Caden, he's got it. What else? Um, I noticed that the younger sister who can see is like taking shelter in her older sister, and you would kind of expect the roles to be reversed where the the visually impaired might be depending on her visually able sister. Uh, But meanwhile, she's holding her hand and cuddling close and grabbing the cloak and uh, taking shelter in her sister. I was trying to figure out why the uh, younger sister was kind of hiding. And then I thought maybe, you know, the rainbows, I think I typically think of like hope or something. Um, But then I thought maybe she was trying to like experience it the way her sister would experience it by covering her eyes. This is, this is the brilliance of, of sharing together. New insights, yeah, absolutely. I think with the older sister uh, kind of feeling the grass with her right hand, 
And so while the younger sister is looking out and like longing for something that's away and appreciating something that's away, the older sister is able to experience and be present in a different way. So this is, uh, I think, a really powerful picture of what it might look like when we maybe physically can't see, but maybe could experience God in fresh ways. Well, yes, through the sister's eyes. So there's, it could either be she's hiding, right? Like she's hiding and maybe wanting to experience from the perspective of her sister. Or maybe she's describing to her sister what she sees in the, in the sky with the double rainbow. Uh, or, yeah, like maybe... Uh, She's finding comfort in the sister. There's all these different ways to look at it. But yes, Kaden was right. It's the senses that are at play. Like she can touch the grass. Uh, she's so still that a butterfly has landed on her shoulder. Uh, she can feel the warmth of the sun on her face. She has an instrument in her lap that she can play music and experience sound. Like all these ways that we overlook just because she cannot see she can have fresh encounters with creation and her creator. I think here's the truth. When you're experiencing dissonance, a growing awareness of the gap between your belief and your current circumstances, often that means you cannot see what God is doing. And sometimes you need the eyes of others. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need the global church. Because we get so nearsighted and we don't actually see what God's doing. So in school this last week, there was people from all over the world giving us pictures and glimpses of what the kingdom is like that maybe we haven't experienced personally in our circumstances. And as much in the West as we see people fall away or deconstruct or desert Jesus or say, I'm, not, I'm done with Jesus, around the world, millions of people are encountering him in fresh ways and are experiencing the resurrected Jesus. We just don't see it doesn't make sense in our present circumstances. And I think what John's inviting us to do explicitly by even inviting the disciples to, to tell him what they see and to ask Jesus a question is he's inviting you and me in this season to sometimes rely on the eyes of others. And more than that, to maybe rely on some of the other senses when we can't see of what Jesus might be up to in our life and in our midst. But the question remains, will our beliefs and our circumstances ever have congruence, have a sense of harmony? Here's the thing I think implicitly John knows from the story that we just read, but also as encouragement for you, for you and me. To not only rely on the eyes of others, but we resolve to trust the end of the story. Here, here's this, it's real simple, honestly. And we've been singing and declaring it all day. If Jesus has risen from the grave and he has defeated sin and death, if that is actually true, that he physically rose from the grave, then we can trust at the end of the story there will be complete congruence and harmony between our belief and our circumstances. Like even with John in his outcomes, which just to point out, as some of you shared, none of us have guarantees of our outcomes, Right? or at least our present outcomes. Like John's life is both haunting and encouraging in some ways, right? Like none of us have guarantees of our outcomes, but if we know the end of the story and we trust that Jesus actually physically rose from the grave and that he's coming back to 
reign as king over his creation, there will be a harmony between our circumstances and our belief. Like, this is, this is our hope. If that isn't true, then, then we're simply just trying to make ends meet for a season and just accept that our circumstances and our belief will always have this large gap. But they will not in light of what Jesus has done. I'm going to invite Kayleigh-Ann and the worship team uh, to come to the front as we're going to serve communion. Kayleigh-Ann and I will serve it for you. At the center of our belief is that our king defeated sin and death. The core of our belief, we believe Jesus physically rose from the dead and was the first fruits of the new creation breaking in. And we can trust Jesus because we know the end of the story. That no evil, no circumstance, no brokenness can sabotage God's plan to redeem and restore us and all of creation. We can resolve to trust the end of the story. And the beauty is every week we have this tangible reminder that you don't need eyes to see. That you get to taste and smell and, and experience with your senses, but you don't even need eyes to see it. We have communion. This little glimpse, a small little foretaste of the kingdom that is to come with the bread and the juice. And so in a moment, I'm gonna, actually I'm going to invite you now to stand. And for some of you, as you live in that awareness of the gap between your current circumstances and your belief, there's not much maybe you feel like you can do or how you can even respond. But the simple invitation this morning is to simply just come and receive, to take the juice and the bread as a small taste of the coming feast that Jesus has prepared. And we might only get a glimpse of it right now, of the kingdom breaking in. But fully, one day, it won't just be a little piece of bread, and it won't be a little cup of juice. It will be a feast that you will sit at, and your eyes will actually see the king. So would you come and feast? Would you come and take the elements, the bread and the juice, the body and blood? And then would you hold it together, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll take it together as a church. Come to the table. Come and feast with the king. Missio, would you open your hands to receive our benediction from Paul's letter to his friends in Rome. My brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Missio, go now in the love of the Father, joy of Jesus the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs>